0: You are now listening to The Big Data Beard. This is our podcast where we explore the trends, technology, and talented people making big data a big deal.
1: So we are back with another episode of the Big Data Beard Podcast, and with me is my buddy Corey Minton, who uh, has decided to sham today and not be the host. But it's Corey, you, glad to have you, and we have our special guest, who's actually been a part of the Big Data Beard team already. She was a moderator for a an episode we did uh, talking about women in data science and women in technology. Uh, Randy Ludwig from Dell, thank you so much for joining us.
2: I'm oh, glad to be here.
1: So, Randy. Um, Welcome to the official podcast show this time. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what you do at Dell and a little bit about your background.
2: Sure, absolutely. So I'm a data scientist at Dell. I uh, lead our data science council in the services organization trying to facilitate data science in many of the different business units to work uh, more effectively together. And um, so I'm here at Rev uh, for the second year speaking about like some of the transformative stuff that we're trying to do inside of Dell.
1: Now, I really want to get into that in a minute, but I've heard that you are... Domino data lab royalty. So tell us about how did you get this distinguished title title is being royalty? Here. I
2: think really the key to that is being the person who breaks all the things all the time. And so uh, we were when when uh, Dell became a Domino customer and we brought Domino in to facilitate our data science organizations. Uh, they they both do on-prem installations and cloud-based installations, and Dell, liking to use Dell hardware, wanted to have an on-prem installation, and so uh, not many customers at the time were choosing to go that route, so we were one of the largest ones that had an on-prem installation, which meant we got to test a bunch of configurations that hadn't really been thoroughly vetted at scale Um, and so I found a lot of ways to break stuff and so I ended up interacting with pretty much every single person on the Domino tech support team. I also did a lot of internal evangelism i guess at dell of why the data science community needed domino and so um uh the domino sales guys became fond of me for that reason i would say i'm sure and so um you know all those things kind of together i also another uh, so i've interacted with a lot of the domino organization because i also have helped um organize uh domino pop-up in uh, Austin, so a, a one day data science conference. And so I've worked kind of with their event team. So I've spent a lot of time working with Domino people at this point.
1: It's really interesting. So what are your thoughts on the conference this year?
2: I think it's been really great, yeah. I think um, one of the things that I always really love about Rev and value about it in the space is I think that a lot of tech conferences uh, either go incredibly technical, like way into the weeds, or are like super fluff. And like, especially vendor conferences can be like over the top salesy and stuff. And I think Domino does a very good job of not being that way. And I think almost all of the talks that they end up programming are very, very geared around practical advice that you can take away and utilize in your organization. And I I really value that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. They only spent a little bit of time talking about product yesterday and product announcements, but they made some pretty big ones. What are your thoughts on what they announced yesterday?
2: Yeah, I mean, the activity feed stuff is stuff I've been looking to for a long time. I think it's going to be a really useful lens of what's going on in data science projects. Um, The other thing about... um, Um, the kind of project tracking and I having spent a lot of time in the last few months building out our story around what projects are going on, what the value is, what the status is, like all those kind of updates for our business partners, I can see how having like a dashboard view of that would be super useful. And so that's stuff that I'm really excited about.
1: Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool too. So shifting gears a little bit, just tell us a little bit about how did you get into data science and becoming a data scientist?
2: Sure. Um, I actually have a PhD in astronomy and did part of that PhD doing education research work, which I translated into being a... Faculty at UT Austin for three years, um, edu- doing uh, science education for education majors. So, uh, really, really uh, invested for a long, long time in science communication and helping people understand the value of scientific method and thinking about things critically in that way with data. And uh, decided for a myriad of reasons, but some of which were, um, you know, institutional support and things, I think are actually better in industry in a lot of ways and uh, so decided to enter data science and um, have unexpectedly spent, I think when I made the decision to enter data science, I was expecting to be head down in code all the time mm-hmm. and that science communication piece has by far been the hugest like transitive uh, skill that I have from before that I brought over. I spend so much time talking to people about what data science even is and how to use data to make decisions and stuff. And uh, it was unexpected and, and extremely pleasant for me because that's what I've always been most passionate about.
0: So how would you, like, if you could talk to the generation right behind us, right? Okay. What, what would you tell them about the reasons why data science is such a great career opportunity?
2: Um. I I mean, I honestly think that the the... forward for um, anybody who's scientifically minded like there's gonna continue to be a huge number of opportunities in the data science space and I think um, I always say anybody who can science can data science so like it's it's really it's just building that scientific methodology into business problems right and so um, there's just a lot I think a lot of people, at least in my experience, who ended up being oh I'm going to be a scientist like that's the thing I want to be get into graduate education or something and and find out that like so much has already been explored that you're really like in the niches when you're actually doing the discovery piece, whereas the business world is still largely unexplored, and so you get mm-hmm. to come in and be a generalist and be able to make like huge sweeping impacts with relatively um You know, not even that complex, quick turnaround projects. Another thing I found frustrating about academia was just like the speed of progress is very slow. And that's certainly much less true in industry. And I think it's really gratifying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so you've landed at Dell. Tell us about some of the projects that that Dell is putting some emphasis on or leveraging your talents or other data scientists to accomplish.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a few different examples I can give from our team and then from other teams and services at Dell. Um, So... uh, The the project that I'm on right now is a uh, tool for tech support agents to when they're on the phone with a customer, um, the customer describes what problems they're having, the agent types in uh, their asset ID and a description of what the problem is and then we use machine learning models to actually predict what are the best uh, paths for them to diagnose and resolve the issue for the customer. Um, We have uh, 3,500 agents using our product, which has been in place for about a year now. And so, um, that's, it's been one of the biggest scale, um, direct business, uh, impact, uh, data science cases that's been implemented so far. And, uh, some of the other cool stuff that's going on is, um, <laughs> We do uh, time series forecasting for budget planning purposes. We do. Um, there's a team that has recently put in place some supply chain optimization around like how do we uh, go about mapping our warehouses and and supply to be able to facilitate getting repairs to customers most quickly. Um, and then uh, there's another team that works on um, on the box diagnostics and collecting telemetry for Dell products, and then using that on-the-box predictive uh, capability to alert customers as to whether or not they may be having issues. Oh, hey, you're about to have a hard drive failure probably, so you probably want to back up your data, or your current configuration of these drivers is not optimal. If you update this one, you'll actually get a 10% increase in Internet connectivity, things like that.
1: And Dell does not have a small portfolio. They have a lot of different products out there. Uh, How is this? Is this across the entire portfolio, a certain subset? And kind of what are the challenges of having to unify this across the entire portfolio?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, For my project in particular, I can speak to that for... so we're right now all in the client space, which means that we're not doing like big enterprise servers and things like that. That's that's not the predictions we're making for troubleshooting agents because the actual process and model for figuring out problems for big enterprise customers versus figuring out mm-hmm. problems for customers who call into tech support are very, very different. And so um, one of the things that we've come across is that uh, the... There was data already in place of troubleshooting guides and and decision trees for how to like lead customers through certain problems, um in the client space that in the big enterprise space like you just have, IT guys who have been doing it for 20 years and they just like read machine logs and figure it out and so it hasn't really been documented before like how to troubleshoot different problems and so it becomes then a very big challenge of like well we don't have data to build machine learning models on. So then now we're going back and how do we understand the process that even exists and then build in data collection mechanisms?
1: Yeah, I also think that just the data that each different product is creating that you would have to use is probably different as well. Uh, So data management becomes a big issue. How are you tackling that?
2: Yeah, um, I think one of the things um, I've kind of learned in my experience here is that, you know, you're, you're going to have a hard time overhauling existing data collection mechanisms, whatever they are. It's not an easy sell a lot of the time. But if you... Use what you can to put in place some sort of data science product that then is its own data collection mechanism. Then you just build on it going forward and get better as you go. And then that, of course, like brings in all kinds of like now you have whole new data sources that you didn't have before that also need to be reported on and managed and governed. And like so there becomes a whole uh, infrastructure of support around data science projects beyond just the model that you put in place.
0: So one of the things that gets talked about uh, a lot is the technology behind data science. But I also think that there was a a comment yesterday made at one of the keynotes that the challenges in front of us as data scientists and in the community of trying to adopt it, they don't feel like there is much of a technical problem anymore. They feel like people and process problems. Do you agree with that statement?
2: For sure. I I have a... uh phrase I often say which is machine learning isn't just a technical problem although it is one. It's not just a software problem or it's not a hardware problem. It's not a software problem. It's a people problem. Um, the, the hardware and software pieces, while they're still continually evolving, are largely figured out for like most use cases. Um, there's existing solutions for those things, but getting a culture of people who are not used to thinking a certain way to completely overhaul the way they think about the world is a really big, hard problem, and it's one that takes time.
1: Uh, so going back to your specific projects, what are you seeing from a customer standpoint, reaction standpoint, what are some of the uh, Know, the feedback from customers actually being able to you know, get better experience?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have um, data and anecdotes, certainly from the tech support side, uh, showing that putting this in place has made them faster, uh, more quickly able to resolve customer problems, which means that the customers presumably benefit from that as well, and experience less time on the phone, are happier with the solutions they get. We also have done a a lot of work to try to mimic all the best practices that tech support has learned over the last 20 years, right? So that um, whenever we're making recommendations, we're making recommendations based on uh, the best outcomes in the past, which means hopefully that those customers are gonna have fewer problems moving forward, and the agents are gonna have a better time because uh, one of the key uh, metrics that we look at is repeat rate. Um, if, I have, if I send out a part and then it's the wrong part and I have to send a different one or another one to complement it, um, that dings the agent in, ha- in terms of how they're evaluated and it pisses off the customer. And like, there's just a, a whole re- a lot, host of reasons why that's not good. And so those are the sorts of things we're trying to go after and, and have generally seen people um, happy to like, be able to have something help them in that way.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So you had a session here at Rev. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what your topic was about?
2: Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, I lead the Data Science Council and Services at Dell. And what that is, is uh, data scientists in Dell are not part of one big centralized organization like they are at some other places. Every business unit at Dell has a huge amount of autonomy, and that's basically resulted in all of these different teams hiring their one or two data scientists to go focus on their own problems and we realized pretty early on that there was a ton of redundancy in the work that people were being asked to do and there's a ton of isolation in having all of these really technically minded people embedded in teams of maybe not as technically minded other people and so it's nice to just like be able to get together as birds of a feather and like actually speak to people who understand your language and solve common problems and uh, so uh, the the talk that I gave was called uh, Boldly Go, Building Federated Data Science at Dell. So our model we talk about as being federated because it's uh, embedded data scientists, but who are loosely connected together through this community. And uh, my mind immediately went to the Federation, which is from Star Trek. So the whole talk was Star Trek themed. And it was pretty amazing, I will say.
1: Were you able to work in a Beam Me Up Scotty?
2: I didn't have a Beam Me Up Uh Scotty. I had a Spock, uh, Most Illogical... I had, I tried to get representation from every Star Trek series. Okay. Um, I was rightly called out by the very first comment in the audience as soon as my talk was over that I had neglected DS9, which breaks my heart because I actually am a huge DS9 fan and I don't know how I made that oversight, but, um, there's definitely Picard face palm made it in. Um, there's, uh, a, the, the wharf. I am not a merry man mm-hmm. meme that, that made it in there. So there's, there's lots of good ones. So high fives from, uh, Kirk and Spock and the new, uh, movies. So stuff like that.
1: Very interesting. So Intel is not a, a small company by any means. And true. a couple years ago they merged with EMC, yes. which was not a small company by any means either. Right. How are you seeing, you know, merging two companies, but also just, the troubles of turning a big ship in creating that mindset of going to more of a federated data science practice.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, I think it's not. I think that particular problem isn't even turning the ship. Dell was already so siloed and independent anyway that just like having another part that's also independent was not really hard to, to manage. But pulling the data together. Mm hmm has been a huge struggle and is still ongoing, honestly. I mean, it's been two years now and we're still coming together to try to define metrics in ways that are mutually understandable by two different companies. I mean, like literally even the simplest things that seem like they shouldn't be hard uh, are actually pretty complicated. We have this, uh, particular metric from the legacy Dell side called, uh, active service units, which is basically like how many machines has Dell sold that have active warranties right now? Like what is Dell's service obligation? And the way that EMC counted that was completely different than the way that legacy Dell counted that is like we're talking about, you know, like if I sold a server rack, Dell would have, uh, tag on each one of the blades in the rack mm-hmm. and a different tag on the chassis because you might need to rep- repair that in a different way than you would need to repair the actual, the hard drives and stuff. And uh, EMC counted it all as one big thing. <laughs> and so then like, how do you, this is apples and oranges. Like it can't do analytics with these things. I like, can't can't count these things in a way that's mutually compatible. So we're having to restructure a lot of our definitions and stuff so that we can even like understand where the, Two companies are, and how we relate to each other. So it's it's definitely ongoing work.
1: Uh, it's interesting. Um, so how is Domino being woven into just Dell's data science operations?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, we really, really love using Domino as our development platform. Um, honestly, before we brought in Domino. One of the things that I found most frustrating as a data scientist is that I we had a Hadoop cluster where it, it had a lot of big, uh, our data and a lot of unstructured data and we were able to do um, Hive and Impala queries on that to be able to get access to stuff, but there was no development environment. And so you could, pre-develop Python scripts and things and then load them up onto the Hadoop environment and then run them as part of jobs. But you couldn't actually develop natively in the environment because we didn't have any sort of workbench of any kind. So anytime I wanted to open a Jupyter notebook, I had to do it on my local machine Mm -hmm. and then do all my work there and we didn't have GitHub either, so I couldn't even p- push it to a common location. So literally, I didn't even have backups. So like, it, putting in place, like version control, backups of your work, putting it in a way that, uh, a place that's shareable and can be run by other people having that connected to your data sources directly rather than running on a local laptop, having expanded compute power and access to GPUs and things was literally not stuff we had before we had Domino. And so it's been hugely beneficial to me, which is part of why I've been such a fangirl about it because it solved a lot of the problems I had.
1: I think you just earned the uh, royalty title for another year there with that go. one there. there what else is Dell using? Aside from Domino, what other tools and technologies is Dell using?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I'm... Um, uh, we're uh, really ramping up our uh, Azure environment right now. So one of the they're things, doing some really
1: cool things. By yeah, the way. yeah. There's fan.
2: there's lots of good stuff at Azure, and uh, we actually the project that I'm on we use a lot of the um, software functionality that's been open source or not open source but made available from Azure. Um, Their machine learning server, and um, that's part of how we deploy APIs. Uh, they they have parallelized a bunch of um, Machine learning model implementations, which makes them super fast to train, and so we were doing things in Scikit-Learn that would take four hours that we could train in the uh, uh, Microsoft ML with in four minutes. Like it's it drastically reduced uh, training times, and then also the um, inference time, whenever we're making real-time predictions, is super fast. So
1: that's really cool. So, what's next for Dell? Like, what's on your bucket list of projects that you want to tackle, things you want to explore? Because I've heard that, you know, one of the common themes here at Rev has been just experimentation and that, um, you know, just curiosity mindset. What are some things you want to explore and tackle?
2: Yeah, so one of the things there's uh a, a great um, truism out there in the internet, and I can't remember who it's attributed to, but ca- a classifying data scientist as type A and type B. There's type A analysts and there's type B builders. Often you can build a model, the exact same methodology, but just the way that you use it and implement it, it puts you into that type A or type B category. So the skill sets largely the same, but the application is different. And I think Dell has kind of figured out and realized, oh, these bottles, like, building at scale and, like, being able to make predictions at high volume is, like, a valuable thing and we want to do that. Type A, we still haven't wrapped our heads around. And I would love to see some of the more senior executive leadership, like, hire their data scientists to sit in meetings with them and be like, this thing that you're talking about could be data-driven and you could be making this decision in a smarter way. Let me go investigate that for you and bring back, like, is this actually... The right way to go about doing this or not. And I think there's a, a huge opportunity there, and there's starting to be like kind of a craving for it, and that's really exciting.
1: Awesome, that's cool. And you, you bring up a point when you're talking about data driven. You know, Nick yesterday in the uh, keynote talked about data driven and then model driven. What are your thoughts on that, and kind of how does that align to what your team? Yeah, you know, it focuses on.
2: Yeah, I think um, I he has a really good tagline of uh, being mo- data driven is like uh, looking in the rearview mirror while you're driving the car, but being model driven is like following a GPS. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of a mischaracterization because I think there's reasons for both and different applications for both. And if you're using data science to inform decision-making, I think it is about being data-driven. It's not necessarily always about being model-driven. Sometimes you can do a lot of um, really valuable statistical analysis that's sophisticated in a way that, like, it doesn't fall in typical BI analyst bucket type stuff, but isn't necessarily machine learning models. And, And it's still, I think it's an undervalued, part of the field of data science in general.
1: Interesting, I like that approach to it. So, aside from all the great things you're doing at Dell, which are really cool, you also are the co-organizer of Women in Data Science in Austin, Texas, ATX. I learned that today. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so Women in Data Science is a national organization and there are chapters of it, and it's pretty loosely organized, and so um, there's a really great conference that happens every year in Stanford, but our group is a Meetup community, so on meetup.com, Women in Data Science ATX, you'll find us. And uh, one of the things that, I, so I've been a co-organizer for almost three years now, and uh, I I really like um, getting the opportunity to help bring aspiring data scientists into the mix. and, and uh, building and learning from that community um so what our our model basically is that we have two events a month one of them is a social networking kind of event to just get together and talk about whatever we want to talk about and then the other is uh specifically geared around workshop sessions um we've worked through a couple of books now uh for uh python and data science and machine learning and so we get together as in sessions to do that and one of the things that's been really cool about it is i, I originally got involved really, really shortly after I left academia because I knew I wanted to still get to have teaching as part of my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I use a lot of the same pedagogy that I knew from my education experience to bring into this workshop setting. And I've actually, we've gotten really good feedback from people that uh, they get more tactical, tangible experience because of that kind of curated environment than they have in other meetups and other workshop sessions. Uh, so we try to make sure that at the beginning uh, we we give some like, you know, 15, 20 minute overview of whatever topic it is and then do pair programming and things like that. We have a Slack channel where people are like live debugging with each other and stuff like that. So it's a really good learning experience and we all get to help each other. And then that builds up our community for when we have questions outside of workshops, So, you know, we come across something in work, we can ask each other about it. It builds. Uh, I'm really big on building community and building trust. I think in terms of learning environments in particular, uh, you only get people truly learning if they feel like they can ask questions. And you can only ask questions if you're in a, an environment where you feel like people are approachable and you trust them. And so getting people together to talk, uh, work closely in pair programming kind of sessions and stuff like that builds that trust for us down the line.
1: I like that a lot. And we'll make sure we put schedules or how to join, all that stuff in our show notes so that we can grow the community. Because you're right. It's all about having and fostering a thriving community.
2: Yeah. One other follow-up I wanted to include about women in data science is uh, somebody uh, from Red Hat spoke earlier today about um, the way they organize their data scientists and got into a conversation about diversity. And um, I find... Any active participating data scientists who are on teams trying to hire should be participating in diverse communities. Because if you're participating in diverse communities out in the world outside of your job, then that's a really great recruiting pool. And I personally have recruited at least four different data scientists out of the Women in Data Scientists uh, group because you already have relationships with them. You already know what they're capable of and it's a really great way of finding people that you don't necessarily do when you're doing cold resume submissions and stuff. It's really good for that. Yeah,
0: I think one of the things I think about when diversity comes up in data science so oftentimes diversity feels like it's a forced topic, but in data science I think it, there's practical reasons why. Yeah, absolutely. Around biases, right? Mm-hmm. If we're if we're sh- sending off decision making yep. to algorithms based on data sets, then you need that diversity. Yep. So is De- I mean is Dell actively pursuing diversity in data science teams the way you outlined?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been pretty grassroots uh, in terms of those of us who are part of the data science community really try to focus on it when we're interviewing candidates and that's a consideration that we bring up. Um, But I I mean, there's definitely top-down executive support for it. But I think in terms of implementation, it's largely the community is already built up of a diverse set of people and we value that and so we continue to look for that.
0: Cool. I dig it. Very cool. Randy, it's been super fun to hear what you and the team at Dell are doing awesome, thanks. to power data science, or use data science to power great experiences, killer supply chain, and awesome products. But I want to shift gears. We found that you were so interesting technically that now we want to learn a little bit about you personally. All right. We've learned a lot from our guests about big data, but now it's time to get a bit personal in a segment we like to call Rapid Fire. Pew, pew. What is the last great book you read that you would recommend to our listeners?
2: So I actually just finished on the plane right here the Earthsea Trilogy by Ursula Le Guin. Okay. The most compelling depiction of dragons I've ever come across. It was really really amazing. Yeah.
0: Hmm. All right, is that going to be the next competitor to Game of Thrones, you think?
2: I mean, it's from the 60s, so it predates Game of Thrones.
0: Really? All right, I'll have to check that one out. Classic. So, you got to speak at this conference, and you may speak at future conferences. If you could pick a walk-on song to play when you're coming on stage, what would your walk-on song be?
2: Uh, So, Bleachers, Don't Take the Money.
0: Yeah, strong. I like that. All right, what piece of technology is currently making your life worse?
2: Oh, God. Um... just like blanking on stuff you know what the dell vpn <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> i agree that's, that's a strong VPNs vpn in general are not awesome <laughs> yeah, no we need access everywhere like everybody needs access everywhere yes. i get that all right so what is your uh biggest personal money pit right now
2: biggest per- okay so i um, i have kind of an addiction to gardening And so there's this landscape supply store, like, a couple miles from my house, and I just drive my little Nissan Versa up there and load it up with, like, half a ton of limestone (laughs) once every month or two. And so I'm, like, starting to purchase limestone in quantities that uh, really a person should at least have a truck, you know? <laughs> and so that's that's where I've spent a lot of money lately.
0: That's awesome. Uh what- I feel
2: like I need to attach to the podcast at least a picture of my backyard and my yeah. most recent limestone <laughs> edition.
0: Absolutely. Well I'm just, just curious, like how could you have that much room for that much limestone over I time? I mean
2: you I built raised beds with it. Ah. I've used it as a you know build Scale pathways. up and out. <laughs>
0: yeah That's awesome. So are there any particular shows that you are binging on right now?
2: So I'm in the middle of watching Stargate SG-1 for the first time. Okay. I never saw it for whatever reason when it aired. And then I have this thing where with media, I'm kind of a completionist. And so I don't like to commit to something unless I know I'm going to finish it. And the Stargate universe is so big at this point that it just like for a long time, I was like, I'm not willing to commit to that. But I started it and it's actually fantastic. And I really enjoy it.
0: Nice. That's awesome. All right, final question. All right. What is the next interesting place you're traveling to?
2: Oh, um, I feel like I should have an off-the-cuff answer for this. I am going to – we're in New York right now. I'm actually coming back to uh, Long Branch, New Jersey in July to visit with family. Okay. And we're going to go to the beach and
0: – Very cool.
2: Eat some good uh, New Jersey Italian pizza and – All that good stuff.
0: Nice. Well, Randy, it has been awesome to have you on the Big Data Beard Podcast. Thank you for sharing the stories about Dell and what you're doing with Domino. And we'll look forward to seeing you at another Rev Conference. Awesome. Will do. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Big Data Beard Podcast.
2: The music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. Check him out on iTunes or Spotify.